Russia has invaded its Eastern European neighbor, Ukraine. Missiles are flying all over the place, tanks are rolling through, soldiers are fighting, and people are dying, and there's even been talk of nuclear escalation. In this episode, we'll try to explain some of the motivations driving this conflict, including ones you likely haven't heard in mainstream media, and we'll wade through a messy march of global politics to make some sense of what this means in the context of the new world order. I'm Paul Dragu, and this is Freedom is the Cure. To discuss the hottest news item on the planet, I've called on two of my smartest colleagues, Dennis Barron and Christian Gomez. Dennis is the publisher of the New American Magazine and the author of the upcoming book, Endgame. Christian is the JBS research manager and a foreign policy expert. Gentlemen, thanks for joining me. Thank Thank you you for having us here. So officially, the motivations that we're hearing about for this conflict is that uh, Russia is attacking because it does not want Ukraine to join NATO. Uh, What do we make of that narrative? And I assume there's more to it. Which one of you guys wants to start? Dennis, you want to take it? Well, that is the uh, stated position of Putin in his uh, remarks right before the war kicked off, right before he kicked off that invasion, which is NATO expansion should not be taking place. And he pointed all the way back to the end of the Cold War when when we had repeatedly given assurances that we would not be extending NATO to the borders of Russia. And yet, that's exactly what we pursued. The Baltic states became members of NATO. And when it comes came down to Ukraine and the initial rumblings that you know Ukraine should move more toward the West, particularly after 20, the events of 2014, uh, when an elected government that was pro-Russian was replaced in a coup by a government that was pro-West, uh, that uh, really kicked off a lot of hostile feelings with regard to Russia versus the NATO states. And uh, there's been talk since that time of, you know, whether or not Ukraine might profitably become a NATO member, uh, how that might look. And in most recent days, uh, there were some rumblings out of the Ukrainian government about the possibility or desirability of Ukraine reacquiring uh, some sort of nuclear capacity. And, you know, from Putin's own statements, this was beyond uh, acceptable. And so that was the expressly stated reason for kicking off those hostilities that we see right now. Christian, why is uh, why does Putin see NATO or Ukraine joining NATO as a threat? Well, I mean, uh, just think about it. Look at history. When NATO was formed back in the 1950s, it was formed uh, sensibly to counter the Soviet Union, the spread of communism, and to prevent an invasion from any of the Warsaw Pact countries into Western Europe. Now, when the Cold War, you know, supposedly uh, ended, uh, you would think that the need for NATO would go away, too. There's no more Soviet threat ostensibly, no more communist threat ostensibly. So why do we need NATO? But in, like uh, Dennis just mentioned, NATO kept encroaching into the Eastern European, um, uh, con- former Eastern former Eastern Bloc countries, Poland, Hungary, and so forth. And when Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania joined, these were three former not just Warsaw Pact dominated nations, but these were three former Soviet republics that made up the USSR. So now part of what was once the sovereignty of the Soviet Union um, is now occupied with American forces, British forces, our military, our missiles, and so forth, right up against uh, Russia's border in former Soviet territory. And if Ukraine joins, I mean, if you just look at at a map, you would see that uh, that, that would leave most of Russia's borders 
uh, occupied by NATO forces. And of course, when you look at the history of Ukraine, uh, a lot of that history is, is, is very muddy going back and forth, but a lot of that is also Soviet and Russian uh, territory historically. So now you would have American and British and other NATO forces in uh, what was once parts of Russia and parts of the Soviet Union. Well, all of the Soviet Union, actually. So you guys think Putin, I hate to justify anything, KGB well, you communist tyrant. No, no, but do you think Putin has a has a point? Like, can is there a way to look at this from Putin's perspective and see, oh, we can see, you know, I guess, I mean, you've answered it in a sense. It's like, well, he's got, you know, the United States, NATO, who I guess he sees as enemies, right? Is that still, I, I know some of this would be speculation because we obviously have no way to know uh, what he sees, how he thinks, unless he has stated it. Uh, but he sees the U.S. and he sees NATO and the European Union as, as, as enemies in a sense, right, as a threat, right? Well, it would seem to be. But in this case, whenever there's a war, first of all, it's, it's an epic policy failure. But more than that, it's a crime against humanity. So in this case, regardless of whatever motivations Putin may have felt were necessary to impel him into this hostile action, uh, attacking people, killing people, destroying their lives, destroying infrastructure is an evil. Straight up, it's an evil. This is not a just war, and this should not be happening. Uh, does that mean there is no other blame to go around? Is Putin the only person who uh, is responsible for this? Well, I think there's a lot of other blame to go around as well. But nonetheless, the, the truth on the ground right here is this is an evil war, uh, as are most wars, and this war should not be taking place. Let's talk about that other blame. What, who, where did the West, where does the West wrong in this? And clearly, that's the case. Well, well. Uh, Dennis actually uh, touched on it when in two thousand in two thousand ten, Ukraine had an election. They elected a pro Kremlin uh, uh, president, President Yakanovich. Uh, oh boy, I can't even pronounce his name. Yakanovich. Yanukovych. Yanuko yeah. They elected a pro Russian president. Yanukovych. Watches Latvian TV. <laughs> yeah. So they elected a pro Russian president Yanukovych, and uh, there was the. Uh, the CIA coup, essentially, to have him removed from power. Then we had an interim government, and since then they've had pro-Western uh, governments. See, ever since the collapse of the USSR and the Maastricht Treaty to form the modern European Union, as it is uh, currently, uh, there's been a desire from the West, by the West, that is, to have Ukraine be a member state of the European Union. Uh, so the West has certainly been doing a lot to make sure that that happens. Uh, so, so there, you know, there's, there's been a lot of uh, what U.S. and British intelligence uh, activities happening in Ukraine to make sure that the Ukrainian people and the government sides with a pro-Western policy. Let's touch on the history between these two countries. I don't know how familiar in, here in the West we are, but there's a lot of bloody history between Ukraine and Russia. Uh, Dennis, you want to start off with some of the I enemy, mean, for instance, what Stalin did? And, and well, you know, the... It goes back a long way before Stalin. You know, the, the, the area in Ukraine, particularly Kiev, is central to the Russian idea of uh, the Russian culture, the Russian state of mind, the Russian identity. Uh, Kiev is a key medieval, early medieval component of that Russian identity. Uh, so it's not possible to really separate much of what's happening in even modern Ukraine and modern Russia from the idea that these are really in a sense, brother and sister states. Uh, they grew up together under the same sorts of conditions, and they have a very long and entwined cultural history. 
so there is that element to it that we may not be here in the West fully cognizant of, but that I can assure you the people in Ukraine and the people in Russia and the people in the Baltic states are very cognizant of. Uh, secondarily, if we move into the modern world, if you were the 20th century, for instance, um, there has been a bloody history there. The, the Soviets conducted a terrible starvation campaign in Ukraine, uh, the Holodomor, killed millions of people, starved them to death, uh, removed food supplies, which is particularly egregious considering that Ukraine is one of the great breadbaskets of the world mm-hmm. in terms of agricultural capacity and agricultural production. Uh, but that, uh, you know, Soviet policy was, you know, we're going to move that food to somewhere else. These people who have an independent streak with regard to being small plot holders and small farmers, they need to be wiped out because that's, they're, you know, they're too close to being, you know, naturally anti-communist. They need to be taken care of. They need to be wiped out. And so this terrible famine was, in, uh, you know, put in place against the people of Ukraine. And millions of people died, starved to death in the most horrific conditions that we can barely imagine. And, and the crime here in the U.S. was that, you know, we could have covered that in our press. Uh, the New York Times infamously covered it up. And uh, that was a crime here on our own soil to cover up what was one of the worst genocides of history. Well, all the more, we wrote about it in at least once in 2009. And I think the estimate was upward or at least 10 million people, 10 million Ukrainians were starved. And in some, some of those instances, the grain, the food that was taken from these villages, uh, from these people, ended up in these bins that ended up rotting. Uh, that's how uh, maniacal and evil uh, this, this is. So, so there's that, uh, that antagonistic aspect of it. But going, now going, moving forward to, to today, I spoke to one of our TNA contributors, uh, Veronica Karolinko, and she had mentioned how, you know, from speaking to friends and or family members down on the ground, there, Ukraine, not all Ukrainians are opposed to the Russians coming in. Apparently, there's some been instances where, you know, they've even lit off fireworks. They've rolled out mm-hmm. the red carpet for them. What do you make of that, Christian? Yeah, we don't hear a lot about that from the Western media. We're typically hearing what's happening in, in, the, in the capital city of Kiev and the other Western parts of Ukraine, which are more pro pro uh West. But if you look at the eastern Ukraine and the southeast region, especially the Crimea, uh, the population of those areas is majority ethnically Russian, and most of them speak even the Russian language as opposed to the Ukrainian language. Um, so, and this goes back really to, to history. For example, uh, the Crimea was originally part of uh, Soviet Russia, and it was administratively, administratively handed over to Soviet Ukraine in 1954 as a sign of goodwill to the Ukrainian people that the Soviet communist government um, believes in the Ukrainian people to sort of build up that bond because of course the the Holodomor is not something that's forgotten by the Ukrainian uh, people so that was done as a gesture there but nevertheless the population remains uh, even to this day majority Russian in the Crimea which they which the Russians occupied in 2014 and still have today, and then in the Donbass region, the the eastern part of Ukraine, where those so-called people's republics were formed, uh, Luhansk and Donetsk, those two republics, uh, again, majority Russian population there, and they see themselves as as wanting to be with Russia, and they see themselves as part of the Russian uh, state. And even Crimea had a referendum to vote whether to be part part of Russia, which was overwhelmingly in favor. Of course, the West doesn't... uh, claim that that's a legitimate election because they were under a real Russian, the R- Russian gunpoint. Mm-hmm. But even if you take out those Russian guns, you still have a majority of 
Russian people there. It would be like, just theoretically, this, this might sound a little crazy, but just hypothetically, if the U.S. was at war with Canada, let's just say, and Canada somehow uh, was victorious initially and took over Wisconsin, Minnesota, Michigan, you know, some of the northern states, North Dakota, and then all of a sudden, uh, it, it, it stayed that way for several decades, but those of us who lived here in Wisconsin, North Dakota, Minnesota, we're like, we're Americans. We want, we want to be part of America. Then the U.S. comes several decades later and reclaims that. We would be rolling off the red carpet for the USA, not for it. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't be, you know, with the Canadian flag. So that's kind of a, a, a way to put that in, in our perspective since uh, this, this col- conflict is so far away from us. Putin alleges that there's been, I guess, within the last decade, I'm not sure, there's been some aggression by Ukrainians against Russians. In the, uh, do you know anything about that? Does, does that sound yeah, the legitimate? Claim, the claims are that there, you know, from the Russian side anyway, that there's even what they would call a genocide taking place in the People's Republics that Christian just mentioned, uh, and that ethnic Russians have been targeted and that their infrastructure has been uh, you know, hit by the artillery. They're claiming that even now that that's taking place, that Ukrainian forces uh, Ukrainian militia are firing artillery into those regions at civilians. Uh, and that's part of the justification that the Russians are saying they have for going in and, and trying to put a stop to this. They're trying to save lives uh, in any way. That's what the Russians claim, in, 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 at least in part, that that's what their military operation is all about. Um, one of the problems that we have here in the West uh, really is to understand what really is taking place there. Uh, there's not a lot of quality news reportage that uh, comes from there uh, or really anywhere else these days. And the fog of war has been incredibly thick right now. So it's very difficult to know what is true and what is false. And uh, the best we can do is make educated guesses based on reading as many sources as possible and mm-hmm. watching as many sources as possible. And even then, it's, it's difficult to know for sure exactly what's happening. What about um, energy, uh, natural energy, fossil fuels, as, as they're called? There's been commentary that there's a large aspect of this conflict uh, mm-hmm. that centers on that. What do you think of that? I think that's absolutely the case. In fact, uh, you've seen for a decade now, you've seen relative uh, efforts made by the West to interfere with the delivery of fuel supplies from Russia to Europe. Uh, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, for instance, has been a point of intense contention between uh, United States-led contingencies and Russian contingencies with regard to the supply, supply of fuels to Western Europe. Um, so Ukraine is right in the mix with that. Many, many supplies, many, there are many pipelines through Ukraine from Russia to Europe. There are many other supply uh, linkages between Russia and Europe through Ukraine. And, of course, Ukraine itself supplies a great deal of uh, economic goods, especially agricultural goods and raw materials. Uh, and so Ukraine is very strategically oriented with, from, with regard to transport and uh, supply of goods and materials uh, through Russia to Europe. So that makes it a very intense uh, area for control if you're looking at, you know, from an imperial standpoint, uh, mm-hmm. whether you're the, a Russian imperialist or, you know, from the, the globalist position of NATO, controlling Ukraine really becomes you know, a key element. And uh, that presents problems for a traditional Americanist foreign policy, which is based on the idea that we do not go abroad in search of monsters to destroy uh, or in search of monsters to fight. And we should not be imperialist. The United States was not built to be an imperialist nation. We're built to be a republic of, of 50 free states in, in the modern world. And we should not be looking at in foreign entanglements. And, of course, everything we're doing in Ukraine 
when you, you know, boil it all up through NATO, that is a foreign entanglement. And we have to ask ourselves, is that the type of situation as Americans that best serves our purposes as American citizens moving forward? I mean, if, if you, again, if you, if you just look at a map uh, where Ukraine is just located, um, it's a key trade route even from uh, the Middle East land-wise into Europe. Uh, and th those pipelines are quite essential. So if you want to bypass uh, Russian, Russian oil and gas pipelines, having a pipeline that would go from the Middle East uh, through Ukraine into the rest of Europe would be a, a huge benefit to Western Europe and NATO and the European Union. And um, there's, yeah. a lot, the, there's a lot of talk about that now, and it's mainstream talk about how even we, the United States, are somewhat dependent or reliant on Russian energy. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of a sidebar to what we're saying, but isn't that crazy? Isn't that crazy that we have, we have all the natural energy at our feet, like literally under, under the ground? Uh, I guess we know the answer, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. Why do we do these crazy things? Why would we rely on someone who, you know, is so antagonistic to traditions of, of, of freedom and liberty when we have that energy at our feet? Well, you know, I think with regard to energy, there's an awful lot of money in play, right? And whoever controls Ukraine is going to have the ability to control the future of Europe in a, in a large way. So if, let's say, uh, in an imperial sense, Russia can control Ukraine, Russia already has exercised a great deal of theoretical control over the prosperity of Western Europe because it controls mm -hmm. whether or not energy flows there. Right. It's much easier to deliver energy supplies from Russia to Europe than it is to transport it across the ocean from the United States or from North America to Europe. You know, principally, we would be sending liquefied nat natural gas on ships to Europe, for instance, uh, to replace what might otherwise be delivered via pipeline from Russia. It's much more efficient to deliver it via pipeline from Russia. Uh, but that gives Russia some degree of foreign policy control over the activities of the Central European states in particular. Uh, and the key Central European state is Germany, and the key state in the European Union is Germany. So allowing, from the point of view of a NATO strategist, for instance, allowing uh, a closer relationship between Germany and Russia which puts Russia in the position of having a certain level of coercion control potentially over Germany, puts the European Union not in the orbit of the North American Atlanticist point of view, but in the orbit of the Russian, uh, in, in the Russian orbit. And that is a strategic problem if you are uh, a globalist from the North American or you know UK point of view. Mm -hmm. You want that control. You don't want to see that that locus of control shift there. Uh, so if the if we can from the point of view of NATO, if we can control Ukraine, we can prevent that from happening and we can keep the European Union and Western Europe in general oriented toward the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, the North Atlantic Integrationist point of view, uh, and the, the Washington foreign policy consensus, if you wish to call it that, that has been you know, with us since the end of World War II. So this is the strategic, this is the strategic point of Ukraine right yeah. now, uh, and that's what's taking place there. You mentioned uh, imperialist uh, agendas quite, uh, and the globalists quite often. There is, uh, there's perhaps I think a lot of people who see this, and and uh, unfortunately there's there's more sympathy towards Putin than I think we'd we'd like to see somewhat. But a uh, large part of that seems to be perhaps 
because some believe that Putin is, uh, is throwing a, a stick in the spoke of, of the globalists, the, the worldwide agenda for, for the new world order. What, what do you make of that, Christian? Is, is Putin an anti-globalist? Um, the short answer is no, but there's a lot of um, evidence, I guess you could say, to say that maybe he might be. And, it's, and I could see why someone would fall for the trap of believing he's an anti-globalist. Uh, for example, in, in, in Russia in general, the term New World Order since the breakup of the Soviet Union has the connotation of, of a, being a Western globalist uh, attempt to take over the world and make Russia a vassal state of the New World Order. Now, does that mean that, that Putin is fighting the New World Order? Well, he may be fighting if it's led by the U.S. and the U.K., but Putin also wants a New World Order. Um, he wrote an article about the need for the Eurasian Economic Union. And in his article, he talks about how it would be built on uh, free trade principles. This is, of course, the economic union for Russia and most of the former Soviet space. So in, in that article, he discusses how it's meant to be uh, like the European Union, but, but yet separate. Uh, but eventually, he, saw, he seeks to harmonize uh, European Union with the Eurasian Union and eventually even other regions like North America and other uh, economic unions that exist around the world. So R Russia is not anti-globalist in that aspect. They're also a member nation of APEC, which seeks in its documents uh, outright to form a free trade area of the Asia-Pacific and FTAAP. In fact, many of the architects of Obama's uh, TPP say that the end goal of the, of the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership is to create a free trade area of the Asia-Pacific, which would include not just China, which is not yet part of the TPP, but will be eventually, because that's part of the plan, but also Russia. Since they are, uh, uh, you know, their their most eastern part of their country uh, is also it has territory in the northern Pacific, so Russia is part of the plan to uh, be integrated with that. And there has been a plan since uh, for decades now for an east-west convergence. So what you're seeing now with Putin invading Ukraine, you see the whole world rally in favor of Ukraine mm -hmm. against Putin, and it's making the position of the EU and NATO much stronger than ever before. It's think about it. In 2016, we had Putin. Uh, sorry, we had we had Donald Trump. I mean, <laughs> Donald Trump come in, and we had Brexit voted on. It looked like it was a move against globalism. Yeah. And now we're seeing a, mo a move more in favor of globalism. The way I think this conflict will end is that uh, eventually. Uh, Ukraine will probably end up being part of the European Union. Which they've already, they just applied for. Yeah, they just applied. So I see that as happening long term. Uh, it may not happen in the short term, because who knows if Russia totally occupies it soon, then that would really put a, put a wrench in that frapping immediately. But I believe that eventually Ukraine will be part of the European Union. That's, that's the plan. And uh, you're going to have... The many Ukrainians who voted for someone like Yanukovych, for example, they will vote to elect to the European Parliament um, pro-Kremlin uh, individuals, a communist bloc, and you will see the European Union slowly become more socialistic. I mean, look at... I mean, the European Union already How is socialist. How much more socialist? Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess... More Seriously? socialist in terms of Soviet socialism. I mean, they have to go to full-blown communism. Full-blown communism, because the, the, the current chancellor of Germany, Olaf Scholz, he is a, it shows Moldova, and, and a part there, the Transnistia region, which is another one, one of these other self-proclaimed people's republics, and if you do some research into it, you see a lot of communist symbology and, icon and iconography there as well, but uh, of, of Russian forces 
attacking from there. Uh, so th- I, I would look at the border areas because that's where something could transpire that could lead to a, a, a further escalation of the conflict. I mean, if Belarus officially does invade and send in its forces, that, that, that would be another country involved. Would the West then consider taking some sort of action against Belarus? Um, that could be the start of a, of, of a, of a bigger war. Then the Russians say, oh, you've attacked Belarus. Belarus is a member state of the Union State, which we belong to with Belarus. We're going to defend Belarus. So, so this could really escalate uh, in, in many different ways, uh, depending on what happens. So what you're saying is, is it's incredibly volatile. It's like walking on a, a room <laughs> where there's shattered glass everywhere and you want to get to the other side without cutting your feet. Speaking of incredibly volatile, how volatile is Mr. Putin? Of course, we brought up this uh, nuclear option, and he seems to have hinted at it, if not outright mentioned it. Do we really think he's that crazy? I mean, he, the guy's 70. He's a, he's a calculated, methodical former KGB officer. Is he just talking smack? Is he trying to just uh, intimidate? Or is there reason to suspect that he's crazy enough to, to push that button knowing that there are just as many, if not more, nuclear uh, capacity on the other side? I think he's crazy enough. Yeah? Yeah, I really do. Um, I don't think he has any fear of these things whatsoever. Um, I think that... Uh, if he felt that it was in his interest as uh, someone who wanted to have a preeminent role in leading the world to launch a nuclear weapon in some way, shape, or form to achieve uh, either a tactical or a strategic goal, I don't think he would shy away from doing it. All right. Maybe I take a dim view of Putin, uh, <laughs> but I think he would do it. Well, what do we know about the guy other than he was a KGB officer? For, for many, that would be enough. I think for us, as those of us who have somewhat of a history of what, these, uh, what the KGB is capable of, I was it's born in... the sword and shield of the revolution, as Lenin put it. Yeah, yeah. So other, I mean, okay. And it's still the symbol of the FSB and the SBR, the two uh, uh, bodies that uh, succeeded the KGB. They still maintain that, that emblem. Right. Well, let's finish off with this. Is there... Um, as Amer- Americans, Westerners, but especially Americans, uh, since that's most of our audiences, are there any uh, any actions or views or anything we can ask our legislators to do or to ensure to make the best of this this this, this mess? Get us out of NATO. Uh, apparently, you and I had spoken off camera that uh, NATO may be a way to get our soldiers involved in this. Yeah, NATO is an entangling alliance. I hate to say it, it's, but it's true. Uh, Article 5 of NATO uh, obligates us to come to the defense of any other NATO nation, uh, as it does with all the other NATO nations. Uh, so let's just say, uh, for some reason, Belarus attacks Lithuania. Seems like that wouldn't happen, but you just never know. There's been some tension there in the past. Uh, suddenly, under the, article, uh, under the uh, treaty, the NATO treaty, suddenly there we are. We're at war. We're at war with uh, Russia. We're at war with Belarus. And... Uh, so as an entangling alliance, NATO is inherently dangerous. And because it's an entangling alliance, NATO undermines uh, the war-making powers of Congress. So, you know, Congress wouldn't have the opportunity to declare war under those circumstances. We would be forced into that war. So that removes that responsibility from Congress. It removes it a f- very important step away from the American people, and it obligates the American people to do things that may not be in their interest. So uh, I would argue that... Um, you know, especially now that, you know, the Cold War ended decades ago Ago now, we had this conversation as a nation uh, when that happened. What is NATO's utility in a non-Cold War world? 
uh, while NATO's utility in a non-Cold War world was contributing to a new Cold War. So it's, it's now doing the opposite of what it was intended to do. And we need to take a look at what does American security and prosperity look like uh, now that we really have moved into a world that is not the same world that NATO was constructed in. Uh, so what is the interest of the United States? So the interest of the United States is peace and freedom for its people, uh, security and prosperity for its people. Right now, I think you could make the argument that NATO is not contributing to those things. Instead of sending our troops over to the, protect the borders of Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, and, and so forth, or in, you know, over there, we should be putting our troops in the border of, of our own country, yeah. the U.S.-Mexico border. There's an invasion going on. That there. irony hasn't a migration. Been uh, invasion happening there. And in fact, that's how, uh, uh, I mean, Mexico and Russia are vastly different, obviously, but uh, um, Putin, for decades, if you listen to his speeches, he has talked about uh, that part of Russia's foreign policy is the protection of Russian nationals abroad. That's the justification in part he used to go invade uh, the country of Georgia. So Congress, what they should not do is pass any kind of resolution that it gives the president, the executive branch, broad powers to support Ukraine mm. um, because those broad powers could further escalate tension. Uh, so Congress should be very prudent as to what it does. And, it should, and every member of Congress should be reading every jot and tittle, every letter of any kind of bills that are put in front of them with regards to potential action in, in Ukraine. Well, gentlemen, thank you. Thank you for, for uh, all that knowledge and thank you for providing what we hope is a deeper look into this uh, messy situation. There you have it, folks. Hopefully, we've helped provide a deeper understanding of this complicated, messy situation. Uh, please share this video with others and urge your federal representatives to withdraw the U.S. from NATO. And like Christian said, look over carefully any bill that may be presented. Um, and remember that whatever ails society, freedom is the care.